So you've been in a series titled, um, or in the book of Acts, titled uh, Witness to the Ends of the Earth, as I, uh, as I hear. In it, you've been tracking the spread of the gospel as Jesus prophesied that it would happen, according to Acts 1.8, which serves as kind of the table of contents for the book of Acts. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So in the narrative, we've seen the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and now in in the narrative, it's creeping out to the ends of the earth. Paul in the book of Acts and Luke, who is most... Uh, likely writing the book of Acts, are both quite interested in where the gospel is going eventually. And what we see in the text is that that there are little hints that the gospel is eventually going to Rome, the capital city. But how does it get there? Today's scripture has an important place to play in that story. But before we dive into the text today, um, a quick story. This last week I was in my office trying to... um, brainstormed some things and was looking at my walls like you normally do when you pace, pace around your office. Uh, my office is, is, is pretty plain at the moment. White walls, not a lot to look at. Christian tagline, and it actually has some truth to it, right? At its best, it's a tagline that teaches Christians, especially those of us in the room that are type A, that like to take control of situations, that we should probably relax a little bit, that we should let God be God and realize that he is in control. But I think more often than not, this tagline has the ability to be abused if taken improperly, and can teach some damaging theology. So at its worst, a Christian might read something like, let go and let God, and actually resign themselves to apathy. This doesn't happen with everyone, but sometimes the thought is, well, there's nothing that I can do, so I'm not just going to do anything. If it's God will, he's going to do it with or without me, so why would I try? I just submit. I don't need to be involved. And this line of thinking can even leak into other core Christian doctrines as well, like that of faith, for example. Have you ever heard someone say, well, just have faith that God will work it all out? It's true. We should have faith that God will accomplish every plan and purpose that he's planned to do 
That's true. But behind a lot of these Christian sayings are a sense of passivity to engage in God's work in the world around us. So this passive view of the will of God has caused a lot of Christians to, quote, check their brain at the door. This, of course, is a figure of speech, kind of like you check your coat at the door. Checking your brain at the door means to leave your critical thinking skills, your intellect, or even maybe your reasoning behind. Oftentimes, there's an unspoken expectation in Christian circles to do just that, right? Check your brain at the door if you want to operate within God's will. But in today's passage, we'll see that to be a Christian, you actually don't want to check your brain at the door. God calls us to engage our intellect while submitting to his will. In the biblical storyline, these two ideals, submission to the will of God and also individual effort, are never at odds. They go hand in hand. So our main idea for today is this. Following the Lord's will requires both submission and individual effort. Following the Lord's will requires both submission and individual effort. And in our text today, it's pretty easy. We see three separate movements that showcase this. We see Paul's submission in the first section, Paul's planning in the second, and Paul's faithfulness in the third. So first, let's look at Paul's submission, which is shown in the first section, verses 1 through 16. But as we jump back into the text, here's a quick reminder of where we're at in the story. Last week, you heard some famous last words from Paul the Apostle to the Ephesian elders, right? Paul lived in Ephesus and worked with the church there for over two years. The love between him and the Ephesian elders went deep, and it was surely hard for him to say goodbye. Paul knows that following Jesus is tough. He's endured many beatings by this time in the story. But this was the first time when he's in Ephesus, talking to the Ephesian elders, that the Holy Spirit reveals to Paul that something troublesome is coming in a unique way. We see this in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 and 23. Says, Paul says, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Imprisonment and afflictions await me. And what's fascinating about this warning is that this is not an isolated event from the Holy Spirit. This warning in chapter 20 is the first of the uh, three times that the Spirit of God is revealing to Paul that trouble is coming. The second time is during Paul's travels back to Jerusalem via ship that we heard about in Acts chapter 21 verse 4. But the most intense warning from the Lord, and I think the most interesting that we heard this morning, is the third time that the Holy Spirit warns Paul in verses 10 and 11 in our text today. It says, While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and he bound his feet and hands and says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, we've seen this Agabus prophet before, haven't we? If you think all the way back to Acts chapter 11, we see that there he prophesied that there would be a famine in the land. 
And that's why Paul is, is running around the Mediterranean doing his evangelistic work, but also taking a collection for the saints, right? He knows that there's a famine coming. So first, Agabus used his words to prophesy. But next, he does something quite different. It was different than the first method. Could you imagine if someone showed up to your home group and took your belt and tied their legs together? <laughs> It'd be ridiculous. I'm, I'm not quite sure what I would do in that situation. But sometimes in the Bible, we see that prophecies from the Holy Spirit are so intense and uh, uh, that words just don't do enough. They need to be acted out. And in the Bible, these are called sign acts. And we see this uh, all throughout the Old Testament. So, for example, one day the prophet Ezekiel packed up his bag, dug a hole in the side of his house, and left town to show that Israel was going into exile. On another occasion, Isaiah walked around naked for three years as a sign to show that the Lord, or how the Lord would deal with the enemies of Israel. And I know walking around naked for three years might not be terribly strange around here, um, but back then, <laughs> there was a lot communicated in this message. But this is the same phenomenon that happened to Paul. The Holy Spirit, through the act of Agabus tying himself up, is showing Paul his future reality. And that must have been terrifying to know, wouldn't it? That just as Ezekiel prophesied using these acts, just as Isaiah prophesied using these acts, so did Agabus. And guess what? Israel and Ezekiel were right. So that means Agabus is going to be right too. But the thing is that this sign act, this promise of capture and imprisonment, did not deter Paul at all. It's clear that what the most important thing for Paul really was is the will of the Lord. He says, For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. Can we say that this morning? I am not ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. To which the Christians gathered around and replied, let the will of the Lord be done. Have we had family and friends in the past that think the Lord is leading them in a direction that might seem a little bit crazy to us and we've had to submit ourselves to the Lord's will and entrust that person with wherever the Lord is leading them. It's exactly what's happening here with these Ephesian elders. Paul submitted himself to the will of the Lord, no matter the cost to his desires or his safety. And it's not just Paul that has to make this tough decision. Jesus says to his followers, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's Matthew 16. Jesus does not promise us an easy life. He says, in the world you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. And Jesus communicates this truth to us, both in these words of scripture, but also through the cross. Like the prophets of Ezekiel and Isaiah and Paul's own contemporary Agabus, all engaging in synax to communicate the will of the Lord, Jesus communicates to us through the cross. The cross is the ultimate sign act 
to show that a dying of self is necessary to follow Jesus. The Apostle Peter writes, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus calls us to follow his and Paul's example to experience discomfort and to even suffer for his sake. Paul experienced great discomfort knowing that the Lord was leading him directly into trouble. But it was through Paul's discomfort that the kingdom of God was furthered in the world. Have you noticed that in your own life? That a lot of the times, God's kingdom is furthered through our discomfort. We are to follow the examples of Jesus and Paul, submitting ourselves to the Lord's will. The question then is, how might the Lord be leading you to press into discomfort in order to further his work in the world. It might be that the Lord is calling you to something specific, a cause in your community, to witness to people in your neighborhood, something else that is quite uncomfortable. The Lord calls us to press into discomfort in order to further his work in the world. But in spite of all the warnings from the Holy Spirit of imprisonments to come, Paul did not check his brain at the door. He submitted to the will of the Lord while still exercising, all at the same time, his intellect in planning. So the second point we'll look at is Paul's planning, seen in the second section, verses 17 through 26. And just as a reminder, we're exploring today how following the Lord requires both submission to the Lord's will and individual effort. So we just looked at uh, submission to the Lord's will. So let's explore uh, what Paul's planning looks like here. So Paul knew that something bad was happening or that something bad was coming. The Holy Spirit had witnessed to him on three separate occasions that imprisonments and beatings and likely even death were waiting for him. But when Paul had arrived in Jerusalem, he didn't go looking for trouble. He didn't try to make it harder for himself by, by immediately turning himself into the Jewish authorities. Nor did Paul resign himself to do absolutely nothing. He didn't just wait for hardship to come. Instead, Paul took a proactive approach. He and the Christians in Jerusalem planned how they could win as many Jews for Christ as possible. This reminds me of a quote from the late pastor Eugene Peterson. He says, Hoping does not mean doing nothing. Hoping is not fatalistic resignation. It means going about our assigned tasks, confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions. You'll notice here that Eugene is pointing out that submission to the Lord's will and our individual effort through planning go hand in hand. Submitting to God's will does not mean resigning ourselves to apathy. Just merely letting go and letting God. Rather, we keep working. We keep planning. We keep waiting for God to provide the meaning and, co and conclusions to our effort. The Christians in Jerusalem had warned Paul that there were thousands of angry Jews that wanted to arrest him, or even worse. They believed that Paul had abandoned the Old Testament law and customs of the people. So this was a really dangerous situation for Paul to run into. So, what did Paul and the Christians in Jerusalem decide to do? We see this in verses 23 and 24 in our section. It says, 
Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what, what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. The Jerusalem Christians wanted Paul to join in this purification to show that Paul was still following the God of Israel, to show that he was just as devoted to Yahweh as he's ever been. This purification was likely a Nazarite vow, like that we see in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 6. It involved not cutting one's hair for a time, abstaining from alcohol, avoiding being around dead things, and then spending lots of time in the temple. If you recall um, uh, the children's story of Samson in the Old Testament, uh, Samson was the most famous, uh, famous person that underwent the Nazarite vow. But the question is, why is it okay for Paul to undergo a process like this? Why was it okay for Paul to take on an Old Testament ritual? After all, isn't Jesus all we need? Aren't we under the new covenant? And it's true. This ritual was not necessary for Paul to do. It isn't required as part of the new covenant. It's kind of like the time that Paul had Timothy circumcised. It wasn't something that Timothy had to do to be a Christian. It wasn't something that God required of him. Rather, Timothy was circumcised so that he could be a good witness to the Jews. Timothy was circumcised so that he could be a good witness to the Jews for the sake of evangelism. And this is exactly what's going on here. Paul is laying down his own rights in order to be accepted by the Jews for the sake of evangelism, in order to lead them into the glorious and beautiful life of Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, to the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law that I might win those under the law. To the weak, I became weak that I may become weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. So through this purification process, Paul is making sure that he has the very best possibility to win as many Jews for Christ as he possibly can. He wants to see his brothers and sisters in God's kingdom reigned by King Jesus. And do we want that for our neighbors? Do we want that for our barista? Do we want that for our coworkers? And what lengths are we willing to go? What rights are we willing to lay down in order to win as many people to Christ as possible? The German theologian Jürgen Moltmann writes, Courage without caution is stupid, but caution without courage makes people hesitant and leaden-footed. Paul could have had the courage to run into Jerusalem blindly, but that would have been unwise. That would have cut off his ministry immediately. Paul could have had the caution to recognize that the situation in Jerusalem was a tumultuous one. But that could have led to apathy. Paul needed both courage and caution in his planning. And that's what we need as well. Jesus also had both courage and caution. Jesus had many uh, times and opportunities that he could have died throughout his, his ministry. But he did not resign his life until it was perfectly time to do so. For example, in Luke chapter 4, 
we see that Jesus narrowly escapes from a crowd that was trying to kill him. It says, When the Jews heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove Jesus out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. I used to read this and think, Jesus probably teleported right through the crowd, didn't he? Jesus probably had, oh, what was that movie uh, a while back? Uh, Click? They had a clicker where you could stop time and start it again. Jesus probably had a clicker where he stopped time, ran through the crowd, and then started it again. But that's just not the case. At least I don't think so, right? That's not what the text says. Jesus didn't tap into his divine nature in order to get through the crowd. Rather, he probably fought his way through. He probably pushed. He, pr he did everything it took to get through that crowd because he realized it wasn't time yet. He had the caution that he recognized that this is not part of the plan yet. I am not supposed to die right now. But he also had the courage to see what needed to be done to get out of the death trap that he was in. Jesus had both courage and caution as he was planning the advancement of God's kingdom. How can you both courageously and cautiously plan to evangelize your city or your neighborhood? What would it look like for you to spend more time planning, working with the Lord to accomplish his will of advancing the kingdom of God here in Portland? We all know that we are going to die one day. We all know that the life of a Christian is one of hardship and that carrying our cross is often painful and a duty that we must endure. But like Paul and Jesus, we don't have to resign ourselves to apathy. We don't have to give up. So let us plan for the advancement of God's kingdom in our lives and in our place. But even as we plan for the advancement of God's kingdom, sometimes things don't go exactly according to that plan, do they? So the last point that we'll be looking at is Paul's faithfulness, as seen in the third section verses 27 to the end of the chapter. It wasn't long after Paul embarked on this Nazarite purification process with the other men until Paul caught the eye of all the Jews that were in Jerusalem. Verse 27 in our chapter notes, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. These Jews from Asia were quite familiar with Paul, wouldn't they have been? Paul spent two years and three months in Ephesus, where uh, these Jews are from. They would have known his teachings and would have seen how both Jew and Gentile alike came to saving faith in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's something that they would have not liked. They had to cause a stir somehow. So what were they going to accuse Paul of? They cried out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Hold up. Paul hasn't been teaching everyone everywhere. And first off, that's a little bit dramatic, Jews. I'm sorry. Against the law and the temple. Paul isn't disrespectful of Jewish religion at all. He himself 
is a Jew. Rather, Paul sees Jesus as the fulfillment of all the good of Jewish, Jewish religion. The temple of the Old Testament is now seen as the people of God. The laws that showed Israel how to sacrifice were no longer necessary because Jesus is our sacrifice once and for all. And Jesus has been revealed to be Israel's Messiah, Yahweh incarnate in the flesh. But all that is hard to explain to a mob, isn't it? Especially when they're trying to kill you. Just like it's hard to reason with a mob blocking traffic on I-5. It was probably much harder to explain to a mob of angry Jews about the situation that Paul is undergoing. Paul is overwhelmed by the mob, just like Jesus was that we saw earlier in Luke. He's punched, he's kicked, he's clawed at. It's looking hopeless for Paul. That is, until the Roman soldiers come and arrest Paul, they throw them over their heads and carry him to safety. God's provision to save Paul's life. You know, we see here that Paul's planning, all of those plans and the, the purification process through that Nazarite vow that, that Paul undertook had kind of backfired. But Paul knew this moment was coming at some point, didn't he? Paul entrusted himself to the Lord and now is seeing that the planning that he did is not making a huge difference. And I think we have moments in, the, in our lives too like that, don't we? All the planning that we do, all of the effort that we put forward to push God's kingdom forward in the world, sometimes seemingly comes to a screeching halt, doesn't it? I'm sure Paul was frustrated in this situation. I'm sure he was terrified. But Paul remained faithful in spite of these trying circumstances. One of my favorite verses is in um, the book of Proverbs 16 verse 9 it says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. I wonder if this verse ever went through Paul's mind as he's slowly being carried over a mob by the Roman soldiers. We like to plan our future, don't we? We like to have everything dialed down, the master of our own destinies, control, controlling all that comes our way. But it never seems to work out exactly as we plan, does it? This is when we are tempted to dismay, tempted to lose faith in God and the will that he has for our lives and the good that he has planned for our world. We see that even in the face of tremendous adversity and uncertainty, Paul remained faithful to God. Things didn't go according to his plan, but that doesn't mean that he gave up. After the Lord saved him from the mob, through the use of the Roman soldiers, Paul stood up and spoke to the people in the way that he knew best. He conjured up every rhetorical trick that he had in his pocket in order to persevere through the hardship that came his way. Paul, like Jesus nearly 30 years before him, remained faithful to God in spite of terrible circumstances. The late pastor and author Tim Keller wrote, when pain and suffering come upon us, we finally see not only that we are not in control of our lives, but actually that we never were. Paul submitted to the Lord's will, and he put in the individual effort to push forward God's plan in the world. Paul is surely seeing now that he is not in control and that he never actually was. 
And friends, this is actually good news. You don't want to be in control. We need to trust a good God that is in control and knows the beginning from the end. Because what would have happened if Paul wouldn't have journeyed to Jerusalem? What would have happened if Paul would have turned around when the Holy Spirit showed him what was to come, remember, through Agabus? Well, the gospel wouldn't have been preached to those in high places of society, and it wouldn't have traveled to where it needed to go. Though it wasn't an ideal situation, right, Paul is now under arrest. The gospel will now be preached to governors, to the high priests in Jerusalem, and actually Caesar himself. If Paul wouldn't have been arrested, he would have died in Jerusalem and wouldn't have been safely escorted to Rome. Which, if we recall, he's been trying to take the gospel to Rome this whole time. Sometimes God uses our hardship to propel his will in the world, to advance his kingdom. So let us not be surprised by hardship when it comes our way. Let us not dismay when our plans seem to fail, because we never know how God is working behind the scenes to accomplish his will in the world. As we've seen, following the Lord's will requires both submission and individual effort, doesn't it? Through Paul's submission, Paul's planning, and his faithfulness, we receive a guide for how we are to join God on mission in his world. Oftentimes, there is an unspoken expectation in Christian circles to check your brain at the door. In the story of Paul, we saw that this is not the case. Submission to God's will and individual effort can and should go hand in hand. Don't give in to the temptation that the Christian life is merely passive. Please don't check your brain at the door. Partner with God as an active participant and join him in the beauty that he is creating in the world. Amen.